Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the complete version of the miniseries, The Asimov, taken from the subreddit HFY. If you wish to check out the original or support the author, there are links in the description. If you wish to support this channel, however, there are also links in the description. Now on to the sci-fi, and as always, I hope that you enjoy... The Asimov, Part 1 of 8, written by Shogun Siddon. Don't lose that ship, Captain Lee said, a little louder than he needed to. Captain, I couldn't lose them if I tried. That ship looks like it's venting four or five different kinds of gases, replied the pilot as she smoothly guided the Asimov behind the sprouting vessel. Two hundred years, thought Captain Lee as he tried to remain in his seat, Two hundred years, mankind had been exploring the stars with the FTL drives, and they had finally come across the first alien ship any human had ever encountered. This was monumental, and the crew was wound like a steel coil in anticipation of meeting aliens for the first time. Now, if they could only get these aliens to stop and talk. It was not that much of a surprise that it was the Asimov that came across the ship. She was built for long missions and acted as a combination of aid, rescue, transport, and protection vessel for the outermost colonies. The protection part was somewhat speculative, as no one had ever encountered anything in space to threaten the Earth's space alliance or its colonists. But the contract with the ECA required the Azimuth to carry some big guns, just in case. The ship was actually owned by SpaceX Industries. Well, they had to follow the certain ESA rules. They were not te technically under the control of the military arm of the ESA, which suited the captain and its crew just fine. While many of the crew, including the captain, had gone through the ESA training and ranks, they preferred the freedom of being a privateer. It meant that they could do their jobs without the stifling bureaucracy. They were at the edge of the space where the alien ship suddenly dropped out of hyperspace, not more than 10,000 clicks from them. This was an astronomical hole in one, caught everyone off guard. His well-trained crew recovered quickly, however, and they closed within a few clicks while hating the ship. Instead of answering, however, it just took off at a subliminal speeds. Captain Lee had ordered his pilot, Lieutenant Pearson, to follow this respectable distance. He didn't want to unknowingly start a galactic war by giving a hostile intentions. Captain, I don't know if they're getting our messages or not, but they are not responding to anything. I've tried every channel I could think of, both audio and visual. I even tried to send them a mathematical symbols. Nothing, said his comm operator, Rohit Singh. All right, stay on it. Let's hope they answer and don't suddenly turn around and launch photon torpedoes at us, the captain said. Photon torpedoes? One of the crew asked. Nothing, Captain said. Old joke. Bogey is dead in the water, Captain. They have stopped moving around and are now just coasting along their last trajectory. I'm not getting any engine readings anymore. I think that they are out of gas. Neve reported. The Canadian-born helmsman was in charge of navigation and she seemed to live for reviewing and analyzing as much data as she could. When they met, he knew within five minutes her knowledge of astrophysics, gravitational dynamics, and a host of other topics that he had only a faint clue about far outstripped his own, and he did not think he was a dumb man by any measure. Lindsay had been a prodigy, earning several doctorates by the time she was sixteen, 
but regulations forbid her from crewing a ship until she was 21st birthday, even on a private ship. However, Captain Lee could not find any regulations against using her as a civilian consultant, and so she had been a guest on his ship each time it was out of dock and the last two years until she became of age. In addition, she was a talented hacker and programmer and had made several ingenious updates to the Asimov systems while in Earth dock. He felt unfortunate to have surrounded by such talented crew. Okay, let's move up slowly. Get us within one click, Lieutenant, and keep above the plane. The captain ordered. Sir, our guns? Commander Mathis interjected. Captain Lee smiled a bit, detecting a bit of hopefulness in the giant man. He couldn't blame him. Being the charge of weapons that he never had a chance to use except in drills must have been frustrating for someone like Mathis, who took so much pride in the ship's weapon systems. Mathis was the son of the farmer in the West Texas and the most unlikely candidate for the ESA. Like the captain, though, he was determined to see space and used his interest in weapons and arms to find place for himself in the stars. They had met shortly after entering basic training, and their careers and friendship had been inseparable since. Bring the point guns to bear in case they do launch something. Hopefully we can knock down anything they didn't throw at us. Ready the main guns, but don't take a hostile posture yet, replied the captain. The commander executed the order, suppressing as much glee as he could. He didn't necessarily want to fire on the alien ship, but he also wouldn't mind finding out what the 50mm explosive shells could do against an alien hull. Looking at the ship, he suspected there would be no need for the main rail guns unless there was some shielding that was not aware of. Mathis shook his head and wondered why anyone would go into space with such a derelict. Mathis would not have gotten on that ship on Earth, never mind in a vacuum of space. It looked like it was cobbled together out of spare parts. Exposed joints were everywhere from what he could tell. Mr. Singh, please ask our new friends if they need assistance, Captain said. Already done, sir. No response. Eve interrupted. Sir, comms or not, if we are going to meet them, then we're going to have to go over there right now. I'm reading that they are venting atmosphere. At least they breathe oxygen like we do. They are. The ship seems ready to fall apart. It seemed like the mission was turning into the first contact into a rescue scenario. Things were changing fast. They had sent a message to command when they first encountered the ship half an hour ago, but had heard nothing. Captain Lee decided command was probably not going to object to the Asimov trying to save the lives of the aliens. Okay, we're going in. Commander, get a boarding team ready and meet me at the main bay. Bring Dr. Chan with you. Lieutenant Doc on that ship against anything that looks like an airlock. Mr. Singh, I'll need you with me. Everyone else, you know your job, and you're the best crew in the ESA. I don't need to waste my breath, the captain stated with a calm precision. Pearson cocked an eyebrow. Captain, is it wise for you to go over there? What if they're hostile? Captain Lee smiled as he left the bridge crew. I'd rather go down in history as the first human to be shot by an alien than as a captain who sat in his chair during first contact. Pearson rolled her eyes at the bravado and expertly docked the Asimov against the alien ship after matching its course and speed. Only a light vibration gave away the fact that she had maneuvered the 600-foot-long, 400,000-ton ship to rest. On the last light of the flashing lights, the Claxtons reminded First Hetik that the ship was in serious trouble. 
On top of that, the alien ship was right above them now, and they were drifting, powerless. Not that it would have helped it if they had power. The alien ship seemed to follow them effortlessly at subluminal speeds, and with the hyperdrive out, the last light had no chance of escaping. He rubbed his fur on his face anxiously, trying to decide what to do when Second Litten barked quickly. Sir, we've lost containment. We are losing atmosphere. This is very alarming. Second Litten always had the gift of stating the obvious, though First Hittick had gave him order based on the protocol of containment field failure. Second, route all power to Bay 2 and uh, circulate as much atmosphere as you can there and divert the containment field. Once we're all inside, drop power to the rest of the ship. Maybe the alien ship will lose interest if they think the last light is dead. The crew member suddenly squealed, Sir, we have contact. They are on a hull. They are going to board, I think. They keep sending us messages, but our translators do not know the language. Do we respond? First, Hittuk suddenly felt a pain in his haunches as his whiskers began quivering. In an instant, he steeled himself. The crew were his responsibility, and he would do whatever he could to save them. No, we played dead and hoped for the best. He opened the ship wide calm. This is first to tick. Everyone evacuate to Bay 2 immediately. The patter of small feet could barely be heard over the chaos of the crew began to make their way down. The last light was an older cargo ship. She had seen good days, but they were long ago. First Hittuk had worked hard to purchase the freighter and sadly looked around to be a 200-foot-long vessel and began to fall apart as the containment fields began to fail. He scurried to his quarters, stopping to pick up his sidearm before joining the crew. Malnut did not allow other species to carry weapons, but he had a pulse gun hidden carefully. It was only one, however, and he did not have much hope that it would help them. Still, the Rothner had a bear its claws and protecting its young. Not matter the odds. What happened? asked Mathers. The ship had suddenly gone silent and dark seconds after Asimov's boarding party had come through the airlock. Captain Lee shifted his short rifle uncomfortably. He was in combat provision, but he was not his specialty. The guns were of caution, fitted into the special rounds that, in theory, should not penetrate the metal that covered the critical systems or pipes. The last thing you wanted to do was start a fire or create an explosion on a spaceship. However, he had no idea what kind of metal the ship was made of. The point was made somewhat moot by the HUD showing that there was very little atmosphere remaining in the ship. Suddenly, the six-man boarding crew felt their bodies lose contact with the floor as the gravity also failed. They were well trained for this and each collectively themselves quickly. Lee engaged the electromagnetics on his armor and was surprised to feel the satisfying click of his boots against the floor. He adjusted the power setting until he achieved a somewhat normal pull against the floor. Whatever they used was at least Paris, he thought. The crew followed his lead and soon they were sweeping down the switch corridors. Whatever they are, they're small, Mathers complained, as the crew ducked their heads as they made their way through the ship. Maybe there are space snakes or something, Warner said over to Com. I would be difficult to imagine snakes operating controls we see here, Dr. Chan replied. Well, they would have arms, of course, Warner responded. Physiologically, I don't think the doctor began before he was interrupted. Gentlemen, the captain said, let's save the debate for later. Mr. Singh, can you decipher any of the markings we're seeing here? 
Zing looked at the signs on the control panel that they had come across, despite speaking twelve languages fluently and being possible in another half a dozen, he could make no sense of the symbols. Captain, Neve calmed, I have no energy readings on the ship except in one area. Looks like it might be a cargo or landing bay. You are headed right towards it, maybe one level down from where you are. Roger that, sounds like the best bet. Mathis, Warner, on point, zoo with me. Mr. Singh, doctor, please stay with the rear and do your best not to get killed. The captain said as they made their way down the stairs. The crew huddled behind the makeshift barriers in Bay 2. Most of them were trembling except for the engineer Niman, who wore her usual scowl. Her two incisors were bared as if clinging onto the bay door seemed to get louder. First, it took hope that she could control herself. If she ship contained any mandolin, they would feast on her bones if she were to be foolish enough to try and attack them like that. Sharp as the teeth were, they were no match for the fangs of the mandolinid. His paw gripped the pulse gun as the eight members of his crew huddled behind him. He was not even sure what he was going to do with the gun. It had limited power, and if it were the Malnid, he might take down one or two, but then his crew would surely be lost. Second Lytton said the enemy hails were completely foreign, though. Unless the Malnid had taken over another species they had not heard about. His thoughts were interrupted by the groaning sounds of the door opening slowly. In his evacuation suit, he could feel his temperature rising and began to pant more heavily to cool himself. As he peered into the dim emergency lighting, he could see the hallway through the now open door, and helmeted head quickly appeared and disappeared a few times in the doorway. Is it Malnid? Nimmin said. No, Hetek whispered. That is not Malnid armor. What are they waiting for? asked Second Lytton. You think they're waiting for us? Mathers asked, resting against the wall. That's a good guess. Do they really think that we don't know that they're behind those crates, though? Captain Lee asked. Did you get a good look, Mathis? No, sir, just shadows. I don't know if they're trying to bait us or they just aren't that smart. We could just flashbang them, rush the position. They aren't that big from the looks of the ship, and there can't be too many. This looks like a cargo ship, probably a small crew, Warner suggested. Captain Lee looked at Warner through his helmet. Well, that sounds pretty unfriendly, don't you think? Warner shifted nervously. If it's a cargo ship, the captain continued, then they aren't soldiers. Probably just some average Joe aliens trying to make a living. Hate to wreck their day going in with guns blazing. The crew looked at the captain in silence for a few minutes. Captain, everything all right? Pearson asked. You haven't moved in a while. I'm thinking. I think slowly, the captain responded, then pushed himself to his feet. What are you doing? The doctor asked. I got an idea, said the captain, as he entered the door and turned to external speaker. He managed to get out a... Greetings, we come before he was hit with a blue splash of energy. The crew chittered quietly as the alien was lit up by a pulse of the first Hittick's gun. They had killed one of the aliens that had attacked their ship. Even Niman was less of a skull on her face. As they flashed subsided through their joy, turned back to fear as the giant figure remained standing. How did it survive? was what Second Lytton asked. What is it? What the hell was that? Mathis asked, putting the captain back into the hallway. Please tell me that was only part of one of your ideas. Captain, are you injured? The doctor asked. What's going on down there? Calmed Pearson. They shot the captain, replied Warner. Well, you got your wish. What is your status? Pearson asked. Hang on a second, everyone. The captain interrupted. I, uh, 
Neve, if you're recording this, I'm going to need you to delete the part where I got shot from the records. Can I do that? Neve asked. Probably not. Okay. I thought maybe they might have been in the same page in the first contact, the captain replied. He checked his head and then wiggled around in his suit. Huh. Nothing. Nothing. They shot you, said Zoo. Uh, you should have sent us out first. Captain Lee looked over the security officer. She might have had a point. He'd thought Mathis was the weapons expert, but Zoo was the actual ground combat veteran. Having sparred with her, she suspected that she had even been able to avoid getting shot at all. Yeah, but whatever it is, it's seriously underpowered. The flash was pretty intense, but it just felt like a wet bag of sand, the captain said. Captain, you should not dismiss it. The weapon may target your nervous system or operate in another manner instead of doing tissue damage, the doctor warned. Well then, Doc, it's a stupid weapon if it takes this long to do anything. But I take your point. They may be defending themselves, but no reason to risk it in case they got something better back there. Warner, Mathis, flashbangs, then sweep left. Zoo, and I will take right. Get over these crates fast as you can. Hopefully they understand the concept of surrender at least. The area isn't that big. Can't be more than a dozen of them back there, and likely a few, if any, are trained soldiers, the captain offered. Mathis removed his flashbang with his suit quickly. Mathis, said the captain, don't have too much fun. Mathis grinned through his visor as his giant hand held the flashbangs. End of chapter The Asimov, chapter 2 of 8, written by Shogun Siddon First, Hetek watched as the object flew over the barrier and landed in the middle of the furry huddle. The crew exploded in a flurry of shrieks and scampered wildly trying to find cover from the weapon. As the object skidded across the floor, he drove to cover behind a crate. The seconds passed and nothing happened. He could feel one of his crew trembling beside him. Had the weapon malfunctioned, he wondered. He dared a quick peek around the corner and saw the flat rectangle on the ground. Curious, he thought. It looked similar to a data tablets that they used. Suddenly, he saw Nimmin approaching on all fours, and she could not smell through her helmet but crawled slowly towards the object. First, Katik waved her to stop. Afraid to yell even over the suit comms, but she continued until she was within Paul's reach. Then she tapped it lightly when lifted it up. The second litten whispered over the comm. What are you doing? What if it's a neutralizer? Or blinding device or a... They are pictures. Nimmin interrupted. Pictures of what? Listen said. From what I can tell, pictures of the aliens outside in the hallway. Nimmin replied as she took the tablet in both paws and looked at the first human anyone in the galaxy had ever seen. The other, Rothler, crept out from their hiding spaces to huddle around Nimmin. The creature pictured with a hairless except for a tuft on its head. It was wearing clothing not dissimilar to what the species wore, at least in function if not form. Nimmin placed a digit on the picture and the image changed. Now there were two. The large alien was joined by a slightly smaller one. This one had a longer fur on top and Nimmin had been around enough species to understand that this was female. Then another picture showed the figure that had come through the doorway was the armored from the aliens confirming what she had guessed. She tapped on the screen again to see more pictures. Cities, fields, trees, collections of aliens, old and young, and varying sizes of colors, playing, eating. They were trying to communicate with us, thought first Hedrick, not attack. Perhaps they were trying to aid our ship, he thought. Finally, Newman tapped the screen and the pictures of the aliens right outside the bay appeared. 
First one by itself, its teeth slightly bared, this was surely an aggressive posture. But why? Why should I smile? asked Mathis a few moments earlier. He was having a hard time hiding his disappointment at not being able to throw the flashbang. Neve had interrupted right before he got them off. It had been her idea to try and use the tablet to communicate with a series of photos. She had quickly uploaded a set to the tablet, but the captain felt that they should take a few themselves, with a camera to show that they were the same as the people in the pictures. Mather, stop being a baby and maybe the captain will let you shoot an asteroid or something, Zhao said as she guarded the doorway. Commander, said Singh, you have to hold still. The lighting here is not very good. I'm having a hard time getting a good shot, okay? That's good. Think we've got everyone. One more, Mr. Singh, the captain said as he removed over to Mathis and put his arm around the big man's shoulders. What is this one for? Mathis asked. Memories, the captain said and gave the camera a thumbs up and he smiled. What is the gesture it's making with its digits? Is it a challenge? Second Lytton asked. Do they intend to eat us? Nimmon was exasperated. They had been debating this for a lot too long. They are new species. We can't know what they mean the same thing with they bear their teeth as we do. Nothing they have done so far suggests that they are aggressive. They have not fired on our ship. They did not shoot us when we shot one of them. They broke open the door, replied a crew member, almost in tears. She was a tan-colored member from one of the northern city-states that had been brought on only recently as a cook. Perhaps they thought we needed help because the ship is about to disintegrate, Nimmin replied. First, Hitek was deep in thought, and he replying to the events of the last hour in his mind. Finally, he stood up and looked at them. What are you doing, sir? Second Lytton asked in panic. I think I know what the alien is trying to do. He first replied, and then he shook the crew as he began climbing over the crate. Captain, you're going to want to look at this, Sal said. The crew all hurried forward for a view into the bay. On top of the wall of crates, a small creature about four feet high was climbing down from the makeshift barricade. It landed with a soft thump and then turned to the doorway. It was wearing a suit of some kind and a helmet partially obscuring its face. Zhao let out an audible gasp over the comm. Wow, a space bear, Warner said. The face of the alien was covered in fur with possibly bright blue orbs shining out of the two large eyes that were more off to the side than at the front. Two short snouts were in the middle of the face below its eyes and slightly curved mouth sat below. It appeared stocky underneath the suit but moved well enough that it took a few halting steps towards the door. Then its mouth slowly curled upwards and a short rows of teeth slowly appeared. What is it doing? Smiling, Doctor said. First, the tick had no idea what it was doing. Usually, Rothler and most other species only bared teeth in a sign of aggression or a challenge to others. Yet, here he was facing huge armored aliens with his teeth bared. He hoped that he interpreted the alien's intention correctly. Suddenly, one of them emerged from the hallway. He couldn't tell if it was the one he shot. They all looked the same to him. It held up both limbs and walked slowly towards First Hittuk. Behind the crates, the crew of the Last Light was beside itself. Second Lytton chittered nervously over the comm. Sir, should I shoot it if it attacks? First Hittuk tried to reply through closed teeth. Second, you are a very capable officer, a very poor shot. You would likely hit me. Do nothing. Through his visor, he could see the alien also baring its teeth. 
It felt fear rush through him. Perhaps the aliens were simply demanding one of them unarmed combat. The alien suddenly spoke, a low rumbling sound, very unlike the high-pitched chitter of the wrath that came from the alien's armor. Then it extended its upper arm to the paws open. First it looked at the size of the paw and the five digits and shuddered again. Was this how the combat would begin? Was this the test of strength? It was all he could do to stop himself from voiding his bowels if he reached one paw forward and placed it onto the alien's paw. He felt his body tense up as the alien paws closed around his, entrapping his paw. He prepared for the worst as it came the alien moved their limbs up and down, then repeated the motion before letting go and placing the limbs by its side. It was a greeting. First, Hedek stood still, stunned at the events. Captain Lee stood still, unsure of what to do next. The alien was visibly shaken and by the handshake, and any further action could cause the poor thing to have a seizure from what he could tell. His greeting had been met with silence, seemed reasonable that they couldn't understand English, but he thought he would try. Plus, this was all being recorded, and he had a great line for when the kids would study this in school. Hopefully, he hadn't said it too fast. That was amazing, calmed Pearson, which watched through the feet of the captain's armor. Captain Lee agreed, but the next move had to be the right one. They were making progress, but it was slow, and he could be derailed quickly. Finally, he crossed his legs and sat down. The boarding crew looked on in the strange scene. Should we come out? Mathis asked. Not yet, the captain said quietly. I think we need to keep the pace slow. Why are you sitting down? Did I miss a class in Xena relations? Mathis asked. Mathis, said Singh, the captain has the right idea. Our size is probably intimidating to them. I imagine any species understands that a larger creature should be treated warily. On your farm, would you rather approach a pool that is standing up and facing you or laying down? Would no, Doc. We grow tomatoes, but yeah, I'd rather face a tomato laying down. The big alien was sitting on its hindquarters, its lower limbs crossed over in front of it. First, it began to lose his fear, but his suit felt uncomfortably hot. Second, is the containment holding, he asked. Yes, sir, with the reduced drain on the power bay is stable, but the rest of the ship will be dead soon, second replied. It's not my fault, Nevin said. I told you we needed to repair the generator before we left. No one said it was your fault, Nimmin, Hittick said. They had atmosphere, and that was good, thought Hittick, as he activated the release on his helmet. As the clams opened, he slowly took off the helmet and felt a rush of cooler air. He panted quickly, trying to cool himself. Then he set down the helmet and gathered his courage again. Walking slowly over to the giant who, even sitting, was almost as tall as he was, Hitek extended a paw and slowly drew it over the helmet of the alien in Rotha gesture of greeting. The alien bared its teeth again, causing Hitek to tense. Suddenly, the creature withdrew its teeth and Hitek relaxed. Don't tell me to relax, Mathis. I can't see what's happening. The alien is right in front of the camera and I don't get a good resolution through your cameras. Pearson calmed. Zal, can you tell Pearson what's going on? Mathis suppressed a chuckle. Well, for the official record, Captain Lee, decorated commander of the Azimuth, the first human in history, is to be petted by an alien space bear. Neve, said Mathis, please tell me you got that. The captain looked around the bay. Nine four-foot-high furry aliens wearing what could only be described as a spacesuits. 
Their helmets were scattered around them. The bay was holding its atmosphere despite the doors being open from the hallway, so they had removed them. Neve had guessed that the energies she was reading was a containment field of some kind. They would definitely have to have a look at that. Gravity was also on the bay, although it was only around 0.7 G. It had taken another hour of slow, deliberate actions before both Asimov crew and aliens were all finally out in the open. By the time, their oxygen supplies were running a bit low so that they had to get spare tanks brought over. This promised to be a long process. No one could remove their helmets, though, as they weren't sure that the pathogens were present. Going through the airless ship had likely cleaned their suits of any earth bugs, so the aliens probably didn't have anything to worry about. Actually, they seemed very unconcerned about the issue, but they mingled amongst themselves. Even now, they were staying mostly to themselves except for the first one that came out and another, slightly fatter one that didn't seem scared at all. It was currently sitting, with Singh poring over the tablets and chirping away in its own language, tapping furiously on the screen. The first one's name was Hetek, and at least as close as Lee could come to pronouncing it. He guessed that it was a captain. It was currently letting the doctor examine it and had removed the suit entirely to reveal a long blue covering that looked like a sleeveless smock. Its body was covered in the same fur as his head and face. Long, pointing ears topped in his head, ending in a tuft of white. Hetic was darker, but the rest of the crew had various shades of fur, including the one with Singh whose fur had a mottled coloring. If he was being truthful, though, Lee had to admit that they all looked the same otherwise. Captain Lee took a moment to survey the scene. They had made first contact at last. Lee had spent his entire childhood looking up at the stars, wondering if they were out there. In school, his parents were somewhat concerned by his focus on the subjects that would qualify him for the ESA. His dogged pursuit of getting into space came at the expense of everything else. Friends like Mathis only came into his life if they shared the same goal of reaching space. He wasn't even aiming for command, it had come to him in a consequence of his tireless work ethic and good instincts. In truth, he simply wanted to see the galaxy and would have done it as the cook if he needed to. He wanted to reach the stars as far out as humanity had ever gone because he needed to know. He needed to find out if those boyhood dreams would ever be realized. If the stars he traced at night after night would ever reveal their prize. And now they had. The enormity of the moment came over him and Captain Lee found it was a little hard to breathe in his armor. I knew you were out here, he thought to himself. We found you. End... Of chapter. The Asimov Part 3 of 8, written by Shogun Sidon. Captain Lee straightened his dress uniform as best he could under the environmental suit in the bay of the alien ship. They were about to have the first official exchange of communications with an alien species, and he felt the moment deserved a higher level of decorum. The small, dark alien was first to speak. History was about to be made, thought Captain Lee. I would like to begin by first offering my most sincere apologies for defecating on you, it said through the translator. Captain Lee looked quickly over at his communication officer as Pearson did her best to stifle a laugh. Only a small, distinctly unceremonious snort escaped her. The little alien looked puzzled by the reaction. Singh held up a finger in the air without looking away from the machine. In my defense, the two words are very similar in their tongue, I think... Okay, it should work now. 
suggested at the alien who seemed to understand what he was getting at. I would like to begin by offering my most sincere apologies for shooting at you, the alien said. My name is First Hetek. On behalf of the crew of the last night, we thank you for coming to our aid, it continued. First Hetek, my name is Captain Lee of the starship Asimov. We represent the planet Earth and we are honored to meet you and your crew. This is a momentous day to our people's history, and the people of Earth and its colonies would like to extend you our hands of friendship. The Rathna of the Rutan also look forward to becoming friends, and uh, the idiot paused. First, Hetek paused. What was he supposed to say? He was a captain of a cargo freighter. Their current load was Afrarian spices. He was not trained for meeting a new alien species. We, um, he tried to continue. We need to get home, Nimmin interrupted rudely. The chubby alien stepped forward and looked up at the giant captain of the alien starship. This is a freighter, and first Hetek is a fine captain, but the people you need to speak to are on our home planet. Nimmin, Hetek whispered. While the aliens had proven friendly enough over the last two days, he did not think it wise to antagonize a new species that had shown itself to be so powerful. Even the small glimpses he got of the ship currently attached to the last light made it clear that nothing in the Rothler fleet, or perhaps even the Manlid fleet, could even compare. Nimmin was undaunted. If you can help us repair our ship, you will find the Rothler and our main government will make better speeches than First Hittick. I've already spent almost a whole day trying to teach your friend about the Universal Translator. Because of that, I haven't been able to start any ship repairs. The alien made a strange rumbling again. It sounded like laughing, but it was so low and loud that it took on an ominous feeling. The translator could not interpret the noise. Some of the other aliens joined in. I believe you are Nimmin. Forgive us. We are so excited to meet you that I forgot that you might be far away from home. Of course, we'll be happy to provide you with any assistance you need. I've sent word to our people, and if we can't repair your ship, we will be more than happy to get you home by other means. This is my navigator, Neve. She will be very useful in helping you get back home. Could you provide her with access to your data? Captain Lee said. First, he'd take motion to another Rothler, who nervously came over and ushered Neve away. As we ship, my engineer, Mr. Peterson, will do what he can to help you. Captain Lee said, pointing to an alien to his left. First attack, would you mind staying with me? I have so many questions that cannot wait. Nimmin was pleased by this offer and began to prepare her suit and tools. First attack led Captain to an area off to the side where he and the crew prepare semi-private area. He hoped that the alien captain would find it comfortable. I'm sorry about the accommodations. The rest of the ship still has no power. First Hittick said, smoothing his fur. Captain Lee seemed this before and seemed to be a nervous tick. He wondered if it was something at all the Rothler did. The alien was dressed in a blue smock and its lapel wore one translator units that all the Rothler wore that was now programmed for English. It wore no shoes of any kind and a well-padded soles he saw when it walked seemed like they were made of some pretty tough skin. Captain Lee sat himself down gently. It had been almost a day since he had been shot, and the doctor had been right. 
Once the adrenaline had worn off, he could feel the ache in his muscles and the light bruising in the area of the shot let him know that the weapon might not have been lethal, but it would still have packed a pretty good punch without his armor. First, Hatek seemed to have noticed, then looked at the floor contritely. Captain Lee had to remind himself that this was an intelligent, space-faring species. Pearson was right, the damned things were completely adorable. Please, Burst stick, I'm fine. Your weapon caused no significant damage, just some slight discomfort. The little alien gave a look of shock. Discomfort? That would have killed most species, and those didn't die that would have suffered serious damage. I will have to let my commander and doctor figure it out. What I am more curious about, though, First Attic, is that you mentioned other species. How many species are there from where you are from? The captain said. I don't know the exact number, but I have personally had dealings with more than two dozen. But we only carry cargo in a small sector, so I'm sure there are many more. First Attic replied. Captain Lee took a deep breath. Dozens of species, he thought. There seemed to be an entire galactic civilization that humans weren't a part of. First, Hetek cocked his head, his ears turning slightly. Captain, you seem surprised. Might I ask how many species your people trade with? First, Hetek asked. First, Hetek, you are the first alien species any human being has ever encountered in our 200 years of exploring space. We've had reports in our history of aliens visiting our planet and abducting some of our people but those have usually been discounted as stories of delusional people, Captain Lee said. Now, it was first to take stern to take a deep breath. He had never before encountered a species was so isolated. Usually, by the time a species developed FTL travel, they were contacted by at least one of the other space-faring races. Captain, where is your home planet? When our FTL malfunctioned, we were thrown off course in our attempt to escape your ship. I did not have time to determine our position. First, Hittick said. Captain Lee pulled up the data pad and tapped a few times before handing it to First Hittick. If you press here, you can see the larger view, but this is our planet Earth. First, Hittick took a pad and paused and looked at the blue disk. He was shocked at how much water was on the planet. If there was, in fact, water... He tapped the screen to get a larger view, trying to determine where they were. Finally, the view expanded enough that he could see a similar galactic formations. His tongue dropped out of his mouth, and he looked at the alien captain. Captain, your map must be mistaken. You can't be from there. It's a dead zone. A what? Werner asked. A cross between a fox and a pig, Zoo replied. They were both on guard duty, although the term was somewhat loosely used. Mostly, they were just there to make sure that the curious crew of the Asimov didn't kept going down to see the aliens in person. After the initial meeting, Pearson had repositioned the ship so that its airlock was nearer to the cargo bay where the Rothler were. This made it easier for the crew of the Asimov to go back and forth and do what needed to be done, but it also meant that a lot of rubberneckers were going for a glance. That's a space bear, Warner replied. At 25, he was the youngest on the crew except for Neve and had only recently joined the Azimov after completing his time in the army on Earth. His family had been poor and he had seen enlisting as a way to see the world. His first assignment was on a base near the SpaceX launch facilities in Florida and like many others, he got a bug to go into space. 
He was an ESA material and he knew that, but he was a good soldier and talked his way onto the freight as part of the security detail. He couldn't tell you anything about gravity wells or orbital mechanics, but he was good in a fight and followed orders well. Captain Lee had seen that when they met. Zoe was taken some convincing. She felt that he was too young, but was finally agreed. The two of them were the security for the Asimov and its crew of 50, but in truth there was little to do on that front, so they both helped out with the duties on the ship as needed. Before this, the only action they had really seen was helping separate some clashing miners and one of the asteroids when a dispute over mining rights had broken out. Look at the ears. Bears have small rounded ears. Theirs are higher and pointed. As for the noses, how can you look at them and tell me they don't look like pig's nose? Zeus said. All I know is that when you get back to the base and I start selling stuffed versions of these things, alien space bears is going to sell a whole of a lot better than kids than alien fox pigs, Warner said. I'm pretty sure it's going to be a long time before you get to do anything like that. Command came back and told us to hold tight. They're sending the Lagoon out here to meet us, but otherwise put us under lockdown. I don't think the news is going to get out anytime soon. Zoo replied, watching the Rothler move about the bay. With the rest of the ship down and the aliens were trying to make the bay as comfortable as possible. The Asimov had helped by bringing over sterilized pillows and blankets, which the Rothler incorporated into the little nest-like structures on the floor. How long do you think they'll be going to keep this quiet? People are going to want to know about this. I'd want to know about this if I was on Earth or the colonies, Warder said. Who knows? They're going to want to get everything from these guys that they can and then maybe talk with someone in the government or whatever they have. I wouldn't be surprised if it was months before like news got out. Warner's shoulders sank a little. He had a friend in Valhalla that had manufacturing connections. These space bears were sure to make him rich, but not unless he could get the first and get them made. Neve finished her download of the ship's records from the data of the second Litten had provided her. The little alien was a nervous wreck the entire time, but managed to get her what she needed. She would review them back on the Asimov and prepare a report. As she got up to leave, she saw one of the aliens sitting by itself off in the corner of the bay as the others scampered around with their tasks. Its fur was lighter than the rest, almost blonde coloring. Lee wasn't an expert on aliens, but it looked sad. She gathered up her things and walked over to it. Her experience with Lytton had taught her that moving slowly and speaking softly were the best approach. The little Rathler, then dressed in a grey smock similar to what others wore, Neve saw it also wore a translator. The Rathler stood very still as she approached. Neve sat down on the crate next to it. Hello, my name is Lindsay Neve. My friends call me Neve, she said. Rathler looked at her, not meeting her gaze. My name is Barrow. The voice came out of the translator was different than the one she'd heard from the others. It sounded more like Nimmons, but much softer. Was this a female, Neve wondered? Do they even have two sexes like we do? It's nice to meet you, Varro. Why are you over here by yourself? Neve asked. I'm only a cook, Varro replied, but the kitchen is not working, so I have nothing to do. Can't you help with the work your friends are doing? Varro made a motion with her head. Neve decided the little alien was a she. 
I would only be in the way. I cook for the crew, but they, uh, they do not like me to interfere with anything else. Some of them think um, a rum shouldn't be on ships at all, she replied. Now Neve cocked her head. What's in a rum? Vera looked around before speaking. On our planet, my people are from the north. We are called a rum. Other Rothler sometimes don't like a rum because we are not smart, so they want us to stay out of the way. Where are your people from? I was too far away to hear your leader speak. Sadness swept over Neve as she studied the little alien. Billions of miles away, and some things in the universe were all too similar. We call ourselves human, and on our planet is called Earth. I come from a part of Earth called Canada. It's in the north too, so we have something in common. This seemed to reassure Varro as she shuffled a little closer. Are you an elder of your people? I've never seen humans before. I am only 39 cycles old. Sometimes they tease me for being so young, Varro said. I understand. I am also the youngest on our ship. Sometimes they tease me too. How did you end up on the ship, Varro? she asked. First Etik came to our colony and found me there. He is a kind Rothler, and he let me join the crew. Do you have family? Neve asked. Varro clasped her paws together and seemed to grow even smaller. My family, my family was part of the colony. They were five in my litter and my parents. We had agricultural license, but that's all gone now. The mandate came and told the colonists that they did not have permission to be on the planet. The mandate do what they always do. We tried to hide when uh, it... Um, it started, but they found us, my brothers and sisters. I ran into the woods and to escape, but they burned the colony. I came back when they left, but there was nothing left. I do not know if the family was any more Eve. I do not know if I should hope that they are alive. The manlet do not treat prisoners well. Eve blinked back some tears. Varro, who are the Malnid? You do not know of the Malnid, Varro said. You are very lucky then, Neve. Everyone knows of the Malnid. They control everything in the galaxy. All species are afraid of them. They travel to system, to system, taking what they want. Our people always gave one what they demanded and hoped that the Malnid would leave them alone. Sometimes they do, but other times they're cruel. They were cruel when they came from my colony. Why don't you fight? Eve asked. Rathla are not good at war, Eve. When we try to fight, this angers the Maldred, and they burn our cities and kill the Rathla, even the young. We never went against them. It's better to give them what they want, at least. Then they have us live as long as we pay the collectors. Even still, they will do what they want. The Maldred, no war. I hope that your people might not meet them. Lee gently gave Varro's paw into her gloved hands. Varro, I'm going to tell you a secret. What's the secret? Varro asked, eyes wide. A secret is something special that you only share with a good friend and no one else, Neve said. Varro's ears perked up. Oh, it's like a hashin. Yes, please. What is the secret? She leaned in closer. Humans, Neve whispered are very, very good at war. End of chapter. 
The Azimuth Part 4 of 8, written by Shogun Siddhan. You mean, we live in an part of the galaxy? Mathis asked. Captain Lee ran a hand through his short black hair, trying to digest everything that he had heard from his conversation with First Hetek. They were in a main meeting room. He could have called it an operations room if he was inclined to hyperbole, but really, it was just a large room with a table and chairs that he used to hold staff meetings. When he wasn't using it, more often nor not, the crew used it to play ping pong. The Azimov was currently towing the still crippled first light back to the point where it left hyperspace. First Hetic thought that it might be easier to plot their course from there once they got the hyperdrive back online. Given the current fragile nature of the alien ship, they were going along at a leisurely pace. It appears that way. Explains why we haven't run across anyone for so long. Apparently, we happen to have evolved in a remote part of the remote sector of a galaxy known for being inhospitable to life. According to First Hetic, they believe that no intelligent life should have ever evolved in this part of the galaxy. We should have died off a long ago, or at least have been worked too hard just to survive to ever evolve into a space-faring race. Too much background radiation, stars burning too hot, planets too close or too far from their suns, gravity too high. He made it sound like all the planets were Edens compared to Earth or any of the colonies. In a chaotic galaxy, we happen to live in the most chaotic part. From what he tells me, the galaxy pretty much abandoned us when we were still trying to start fires with sticks. Hard to get a definite timeline, as I'm not sure the translators can convert properly. Captain D, I was taking a drink of water. Dr. Chan spoke up. I might explain the difference I'm seeing in the biology. I would like to be able to do more thorough examination of our friends. I can only do so much here, and frankly, I don't have the expertise. I'm supposed to be mending broken bones and cuts. You're doing fine, doctor. Can you give me a rundown on what you know? Captain D asked. Well, biologically, it looks like we are evolved amongst the same lines. Their atmosphere is pretty close to Earth normal, a little more oxygen than what we're used to, but well within tolerable acceptances. Gravity is much lower than ours, as you said. They do require water, and the sample we got shows microorganisms, some of which resemble things we have on Earth and others are, well, alien, the doctor replied. You're saying they could live on Earth? asked Mathis. From what I can tell, yes, except the gravity would make them very uncomfortable and the reduced oxygen would leave them a bit weakened. From what I gathered, most of the other species evolved within a certain band of conditions outside which intelligent life usually can't evolve. We may be an extreme end of that band. There are a lot of similarities in terms of the basic needs when it comes to staying alive. Again, though I'm just talking broad strokes, something as simple as a common cold could wipe them out even if they were otherwise enjoy a nice salad, although they seem to be strangely unworried about alien pathogens. Salad? Are they vegetarians? No wonder they're so small and weak, Mathis said laughing. Slow too, said Patterson, the chief engineer. The old man sat on his hands clasped in front of him, leaning back in the rear of the legs his shiny head only retaining a few tufts of white hair, which he rarely bothered combing. They seem to move fine for their size, Captain Lee said. Ah, not that kind of slow. I mean slow thinkers, Peterson replied. 
Can you elaborate? Dr. Chan asked, thinking that if Peterson thought the creatures were slow, it must mean something, as he had never seen the older man in a rush in a year that he'd been on board. Well, I was helping that one alien, Nimmin. I was helping her, and I think it's a her, in the engine room. Apparently, whatever they used to power had blown a fuse, or whatever passes for one. It was still producing, but there's no systems were getting any power. Best I could tell, they had to run it too hard, and the thing was barely holding together. As she was explaining to me how things worked, I could see pretty damn quickly that she needed to reroute a couple things to bypass some blown conduits. I'm not saying I know the stuff works exactly, but the basic principle, you got a power source and you need to direct it somewhere. If your tube or wire or whatnot is burnt out or busted, you need to find another way to route that power. Peterson continued. She didn't know that, Mathis asked. No, not to say that she couldn't have figured it out. When she was explaining to me how things work, she obviously knew what she was doing, but for some reason, when you throw a wrench into it, she seems to have had a hard time making adjustments. Once I pointed out possible solution, it seemed like a light would go off in her head. I'm not saying they're stupid, though, Peterson said. These humans must be stupid, Nimmin said as she gently cleaned her fur. Why do you say that, Second Lytton asked. He was currently helping her run some tests. With the humans' help, they had restored power and containment to the rest of the ship, and he was glad to not have to wear his suit anymore. I was talking to their engineer about ships, and do you know that these humans used explosives to get into space when they first started? She asked, running over the results. I think your translator heard them wrong. No species would do that. Everyone's master's anti-gravity first before trying to go into space, Second Lytton replied. My ears work fine, Second. I know what I heard. The creatures are completely reckless, strapping themselves onto, what did he call them, rockets? Giant tubes filled with combustible fuels. Even today, they don't even use containment fields on their ship. They rely on their ship's walls to keep in the atmosphere. It's unbelievable that they ever got into space, she continued. Second Lytton looked around nervously. He could not imagine going through space with nothing but metal walls to protect you. Anything else than full containment would be suicide. What kind of ship were they traveling in? Basically, it's a piece of crap, Peterson continued. They're relying on a containment field for pretty much everything on the ship. That's why the construction looks so shoddy compared to what we have. Once they get the containment field up and running, they don't worry so much about the exterior, because the containment fields serve as a primary structure for the ship. Their engineering tolerances are way beyond anything we would accept. I'm not saying I saw any actual holes in the hull, but in some places I'm sure it seemed to be awfully close. The Asimov's hull is probably four to five times thicker than what they have and way better put together. Is this something common with other species? Pearson asked. She had joined the meeting late, insisting on making absolutely sure that they were on the right course first. Nave usually made quick work of that, but she had asked to stay on the first light and help one of the aliens with something. Common hell, it seemed to be the only way everyone else got into space. Nimmin looked at me like I was crazy when I started talking about old rockets that we used. That's why it took them so long to get into space. They picked the lock to discover space travel. We kicked in the door. Eventually, you get through it, but it took them thousands of years to do what we did in a few hundred, Peterson said. 
I agree. I wouldn't rely on fields, but as a backup measure, they definitely have their uses. Do you think it's something that we can easily replicate? Captain Lee asked. I think it's doable with their help. Last I heard on the subject, we were getting closer to a practical solution, but having a working unit would be a big step that I'd have to assume, Peterson replied. Anyway, their engine and hyperdrive are still out, and I told her that I would get back and help her. Just wanted to come back here and get some equipment and give you a report. Thanks, Mr. Peterson. Has anyone else seen Singh? Captain Lee asked. He's on the bridge, Lieutenant Pearson said. He's trying to get one of their translations to hook up to our comm system. Last I left him, he was muttering about pheromones or something. He said that he would come down soon. Captain Lee knew this communication operator well and understood that soon might mean a few hours. Once Singh found something interesting, he didn't let go easily. Captain Lee managed to poach him from the Olympus colony world where he had been working as a government interpreter. Singh was born on Olympus and had never seen Earth until Lee offered him the job. In a few years, he had been on board the shy academic had slowly come out of his shell. The man who used to be afraid of Mathis could now joke with the big man easily. Captain Lee took a deep breath. There was a lot to take in. Command had ordered him to not break the news to anyone else that the Lee Guan would meet them at the coordinates he provided them in another day or so. The Asimov had a load of equipment meant for the Elysium, but they would have to wait for a bit longer. He felt a twinge of sadness. He knew when the Leguain arrived, ESA proper would probably take over, and it might be some time before he even got a chance to see Rothler again, and he still had so many questions. His stomach began to let him know that he had not eaten since the official introductions ten hours ago. He knew a lot of his crew had also been working hard and decided it was time to get everyone something to eat. You eat other living things? Varro asked with shock, almost dropping the container she was carrying. Neve could feel herself flushing in a suit. They were in the kitchen and the last light now that the ship was powered up again, but the doctor had said that they had to remain in their suits. Varro was preparing food for the Rothler crew when they had been eating emergency rations for the past couple days when they were trapped in the cargo bay. Well, the ones that can't talk, we wouldn't eat you, Neve said, trying to make the situation better. What do you eat? Varro looked at her for a whole minute, and usually Neve would smile in a situation like this, but she had learned that that didn't show her your teeth to a Rothler. Your people are very strange, Neve, Barrow said. I think you are the first predator species that we have ever befriended. We usually try and stay far away from them. Rothler only eat plants. We also eat a lots of vegetables too, Neve said hopefully. What are you making? This is Captain's favorite. It's basu root and nullet, Barrow said. Neve looked at the mixture in the bowl. The basu root we pour into a pan and cook it and then we throw in some nullet. Barrow said, producing some very dark round berries. Neve smiled. Space pancakes, she thought to herself as she watched the yellow-furred alien move around the kitchen. Everything was made for Rothler, so Neve felt a bit like a giant trying to find a place to stand without knocking anything over. She had to admit that Varro seemed like she knew what she was doing. The Rothler seemed to be much happier now that they had her in a kitchen back. They had spent a lot of time talking about things that they had seen in space during the few hours it took to get the rest of the ship back online. Vara proved that she was far more from stupid. 
She was very observant, and Neve thought that she might have gained more useful information talking to her new friend than she got from the data on the second litten. The little alien seemed to be able to recall things at an astonishing detail. Compared to what Vera had seen, Neve felt like she had little to offer. Humans had only colonized a handful of worlds and the pink clouds of Valhalla that seemed so amazing before, paled in comparison to ringed planets with tree-sized flowers that Barrow had told her about. Neve, can you please get me a bowl behind you? Barrow asked. Neve looked behind her and saw the shelf. As she reached her pan, she was violently knocked off her feet as the ship lurched underneath her. Three ships, Captain. They hit us, and now they're heading our way from our position, Lieutenant Pearson said as the other crews scrambled to their posts on the bridge. They had only a few seconds of warning that the ships had dropped out of hyperspace before getting rocked by something. Obviously not ours, Mr. Singh. Can you hail them with the translator? Commander Mathis, scan those ships and let me know what we're looking at. Lieutenant Pearson, any damage? Minor reports coming in. I can't keep up with them and fly the ship at the same time. We need Nevia. Where is she? Captain Lee asked, directing another crew member to the seat normally occupied by his young helmsman. Last I saw her, she was still on the last light, Lieutenant Pearson said, accelerating the ship away from the unknown assailants. Captain, no response from the new players, but First Hedrick is calling us, Singh said. Put him through and tell the ship to batten down. Tell Zoo to get her team ready as well. Captain Lee! First Hedrick screamed over the comm. Those are Malnid ships. They found us. I don't know how. Found you? You didn't mention that they were looking for you, Captain Lee responded. We must escape, Captain. I can explain later, First Hedrick said, his voice straining. Captain, the ships are coming around, accelerating hard at us. I'm getting energy spikes. I think they're going to fire on us again, Commander Mathis reported. I can't bring the guns to bear with the last light below us. Lieutenant Pearson, roll us to port, and I want the Asimov between us and the last light. I don't know what those ships have, but I'm willing to bet that we can take a hit better. Aye, but we're still attached, Captain. We can't fight back towing another ship like this. Let's worry about it after, Captain Lee said. Brace for impact, Commander Mathers said, as the ship was rocketed as multiple blasters and malnourished ships. First Hedrick was almost thrown off of his feet again as a pulse cannons from the Malnet attack cruisers raked over the Azimov. He could not see the blasts hit, but he felt them as the hull of the human ship absorbed the impact and transferred the shock to the last of light. Then he saw the three Malnet ships streaking off. All crew, put on your evacuation suits immediately. He ordered over the wide comms as he worked to secure his helmet. He couldn't tell how much damage the Azimov had taken, but he had to believe it was severe. One Malnid ship was bad enough, but the firepower from three was a match for anything in the galaxy. The last light could offer no help. She carried no weapons. That was not allowed by the Malnid. Yet all he could do was try and help his people survive and hope the Azimov had some teeth. Suddenly, he felt a slight shudder through his feet. As he looked up, he saw the Azimov undocking. They were leaving us. His heart sank, and yet he felt no anger, only sadness. The human had felt the power of the Malnet, and now they understood why the galaxy lived in fear of them. He did not blame them for running. He would have done the same. The last light was crippled and would only slow them down. He turned away from the viewport as two ships separated and began to make his way to the stairwell. 
He was the first, and they would need him in the short time that they had left. End of chapter. The Asimov, chapter number 5 out of 8, written by Shogun CDN. Alpha Talon, the largest ship is disengaging from the Rothler ship, the Malded officer reported. I am surprised they can even move over our attacks. Let them flee. We will deal with the Rothler garbage and find the other ship later. It won't be able to live far. Bring us around, Alpha Talon ordered. He had spent two weeks tracking down the worthless Rothlin ship, and he was going to strip flesh from bone before the day was done. Sir, the officer shouted, they're not fleeing. They're heading straight for us and are accelerating. Someone on that ship believes that they have a fang and claw to go against the three Melnid warships. Good. We have gone far too long without any support. Officer Paulette, break off and secure the Rothlin ship until I get there. We will discipline these poor, brave fools, Alpha Talon said. The alien ship was tough, but their pulse cannon should have wreaked havoc on their containment fields, he thought. The fight would be over quickly. The Malnerd ship's snarl broke off from the sisters as an unknown ship bore down at them. The snapjaw was left to assist the Alpha's long claw. Officer Palat shook his head at the stupidity of whoever was in charge of the ship flying to its death. How are we doing? Captain Lee asked. Minor injuries being reported, Captain. Mostly cuts and bruises from being thrown around. The, um, uh, systems are, uh, we seem, uh, sorry, sir. I'll have it in a minute, the crewman responded. Well, get there later, Mr. Peterson. He asked over the comm. How are we doing for power? We're fine down here, sir. You have everything the Asimov can give you, came the reply. Commander, the weapons, Captain Lee asked. Point guns are loaded, rail a gun is online and primed. Please don't tell me that we're going to send them pictures, Mathis responded grimly. Not this time, Commander. Captain, the one of the two smaller ships is breaking off the starboard side, Lieutenant Peterson reported. Let it go and we'll get after them. Find the biggest ship of the two remaining. We're going to punch it right in the nose. Commander, get me a target, Captain Lee ordered. Captain, you're not going to believe this, but I think the bulges on top of the ship are the bridge, Mathis replied with a review of the enlarged images that rapidly approaching ships. The news surprised Captain Lee. From what he had heard of the Malnid and the First Hetak, they were a warring race. He never expected that any group that fought in space would be stupid enough to leave their bridge exposed on the top of their ships. In contrast, the Asimov wasn't a purpose-built warship, but even it had a bridge buried deep in the heart of the ship, surrounded by many feet of titanium-reinforced metal and nanocarbon armor. Multiple redundant cameras and sensor systems in various parts of the ship provided them with their ears and eyes. There was an observation deck he sometimes liked to spend time in, but the nerve center of the ship was protected better than anything else. Commander, note for the record that the Asimovs were fired upon without provocation by an unknown hostile force while peacefully rendering aid to the alien ship in distress. All hails to the attackers have gone unheeded. The Asimov is now defending itself and its newfound friends. Now that we have satisfied the lawyer's commander, weapons are free. You may fire in the target of opportunity, the captain said. Commander Mathis nodded and turned his attention to the weapon controls. 
The two turret-mounted 50mm cannons were capable of firing 6,000 rounds per minute. The Asimov carried 100,000 rounds thanks to a generous discount offered by the arms manufacturer on Earth. These smaller guns were overshadowed by the railgun the Asimov carried. That weapon, by 10 kilogram shells, accelerated the hardened ammunition to 30 kilometers per second at the rate of two for each second. He could control them all from the three fire control stations built in the ship. Another redundant safety feature. Light exploded from the trigger of the two alien ships before the Asimov could get into range of its own guns. Lieutenant Peterson was ready for them this time, though, and without the last light holding them back, she had the Asimov on an erratic approach, constantly changing her vectors and not giving the alien ships any easy target like the before. One blast caught the Asimov in its hull, but the other shots fled harmlessly by. Finally, the light blinked on the screen and alerting Commander Mathis that he was in range. The targeting computers locked on to the selected targets, and he felt the satisfying click as he fired the cannons first. The railgun then swiveled, and he thought he could feel the soft swamp under his feet as it fired. Alfred Talon watched in shock as the ship approached, darting more quickly than anything that he had ever seen. It was as large as the long claw, but was obviously much more agile. Though its hull was scorched and damaged after taking two full volleys from the three melded ships, it still seemed fully operational. As most of the shots of the long claw and the snap jaw slid by, alerts appeared on his screen. We have multiple sensor readings, Alpha. They're extremely small, the officer called out. How many? he demanded, as he watched the tiny flickering lights suddenly appearing. Thousand. The officer started before he was cut off by hundreds of explosions lighting up the hull of the long claw. Pieces of hull were drifting apart in tiny invisible projectiles. The bridge exploded in chaos as emergency warnings began blaring. Alpha, multiple hull failures are being reported. One section of the hull is completely gone, an officer shouted. Two large explosions then rocked the long claw as the alien ship flew by, throwing its crew out of their seats and sending blinding flashes of light across the length of the ship. Turn the ship all power to containment fields. What happened? Did another ship attack us? Alpha Talon shouted over the din. No, sir. It came from that ship. It's turning. Snap jaw, get between us. Shield us from that ship. Alpha Talon ordered. Sir, they're coming back. They seem to be ignoring the snapjaw completely. We have sensor readings again. The crew of the Long Claw had only a microsecond to react as the tiny lights rippled along the alien ship again until explosions splashed against the hull, wreaking havoc on the metal. Any alarms that were not already sounding added themselves to the chaos. Do we have containment? The Alpha roared. The question became moot as soon as it was asked that the bridge split apart in blinding explosion. Alpha Talon could only watch helplessly as the bridge was suddenly exposed to the harshness of the outer space. As his blood boiled in the vacuum, his last thoughts were the dark ship that flashed by as he briefly wondered what the symbols A-S-I-M-O-V meant before his world went blank. The Asimov broke away from the alien ship and itself apart. The railgun had hit just below the bridge and the thin armor of the ship could do nothing against the sheer kinetic impact of the shell hitting at such speeds. The containment fields were never designed to address this kind of brute force attack. 
and the systems began to fail, so did the containment fields. The alien ship lay lifeless as Lieutenant Pearson pulled the Asimov into a hard turn. Well done, Commander, Lieutenant Pearson, Luke Mr. Peterson. I know we took a few shots on the other ship, and we're pushing the Asimov pretty hard. Are we okay down there? Captain Lee asked. We lost something taking those last few hits, Captain. I'll figure it out later, but all major systems are going to go, Peterson replied over the comm. Captain, the remaining ship is behind us is peering away but still firing, Lieutenant Peterson said. Close the gap, Lieutenant. Their guns may be weaker, but they have a longer range, Captain Lee said as the ship was rocked by a few more shots. They got a good head start as we passed. We're going to have to push it, and we're going to be less maneuverable at those speeds. They'll probably get a few more hits in before we catch them. If we do, Lieutenant Pearson replied. Merda! Neve's head was throbbing as she picked herself up from the floor. She felt something running down her face and put her hand up to her head. She pulled her fingers back and saw blood on the tips. Suddenly, she realized that her helmet had broken. The environmental suits were made to keep out bacteria and viruses not for battle. Too late now, as she said, as she reached up for the clasps. As she pulled off the helmet and the air felt warm against her face, something smelled really good. Barrow! Neve threw her helmet aside and struggled to get up. The kitchen was covered in food and utensils. Suddenly, alarms were going off all over the ship. Barrow! Barrow! Where are you? She yelled. If the ship was losing power again, they had to find others and get somewhere safe. Varro was left out of evacuation suit in the bay, so neither of them had any protection of the loss of atmosphere. She clambered over to the larger table that dominated the kitchen. The emergency lighting made it harder to see as she kept stepping on pots and the other kitchen equipment. She made it back to the stove where she had last seen Varro and looked around frantically. Varro! Varro! Where are you? Something's happened! Neve shouted over the alarms. Suddenly, she saw some yellow fur buried under the collapsed shelving. She started putting the debris off the unmoving rottler. As she removed the large bag of food, she took a deep breath. Varro had an ugly gash on the side of her fur where it was stained as a dark, almost black color. Neve grabbed a cloth from the floor and did her best to staunch the wound. She tried a couple more of the clothes together and then used them to bind the makeshift bandage. She had no formal medical training, but she had read enough that she knew that you had to stop the bleeding. Dr. Chan would have to do the rest, she thought, as she slowly picked up Vera and made her way to the hallway. The alien was surprisingly light, even in the reduced gravity. Dr. Chan, are you there? She calmed. Silence greeted her. Captain, Peterson, is anyone there? Pharaoh is hurt. We need a doctor. Anyone? The comm must be damaged, she thought. She would have to get back to the Asimov herself. Back to Bay 2, First Attic said as a small crew began to filter out of the hallway. Evacuation suits on. Second, Litton ran up. What happened? The engine was stable. Malnid, First Attic replied. Three attack ships. Second, Litton pained nervously. What of the Asimov? Can they protect us? First Hittick placed a paw on the second shoulder. We are alone, Lytton, they fled. They had no choice. We must help the others. Where is little Varro? I have not seen her. I think she was with the human, second Lytton said, fear rising in him. If the powerful humans had run away, what would happen to them? 
Gather the others. We need to find a place to hide. Meet me near the engine room. Don't think the Malnut will destroy the ship, but if they come back, they surely will board us. I will find Vera. If the Malnut board and I'm not there to take the crew someplace safe, if they find you, hold them off for as long as you can. First, Hittick said, handing the pulse gun to the second Lytton. What if, um, what if my courage fails? Second Lytton asked. Keep the crew alive, second. If you feel surrender is the better option, you'll have done your duty. There would be no shame in that, first Hittick said as he disappeared down the hallway. Nee stopped in the hallway, unsure where to go. The ship seemed small enough when the lights were on, but now that the hallways were dark, and with the alarm sounding, she was disoriented. By bay two, she would have been down this hallway, but she had run into a dead end near the supply room. Varro was still not moving, and she felt helpless as her friend seemed to get lighter as the minutes passed. Suddenly, she felt the ship shudder again. Not as violently this time, then a loud shearing noise vibrated through the metal of the ship. Had something happened to the Asimov, she wondered. She turned down another unfamiliar hallway and almost screamed as a fury bundle slammed into her. First Hetek was sent reading back and slammed into the wall. First Hetek, I'm sorry, I, I didn't see you there, Neve said. First Hetek rubbed his head with one paw. Arrow, he said as he saw the Rothler. What happened? He asked. No, 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 she's hurt. We have to get her back to the Asimov so that Dr. Jan can help us. She's lost a lot of blood, Deep said. I'm afraid we can't, First Hittick said sadly. The Malnid have attacked. Your ship is gone. Gone? The explosion. Neve tried to process the words and suddenly she felt very weak. End of chapter. The Asimov, Chapter 6, written by Shogun CDN The human stood very still and then slumped a little. First, Hetek tried to steady her, but her weight was far more than he could bear, and she almost fell on top of him before riding herself. He looked at her with sadness as tears escaped her eyes. She was Rothla in some ways, despite being so different, he thought. Come, Neve. If those sounds are what I think they are, then the Malnid have cut through the hull and will be boarding. We need to get someplace safe, he said, trying to lead her towards the engine room. As they made their way in the dim light, he could hear the sobbing, and yet she carried on, holding Varro as if she were a toy. He felt, for the human, to be alone without your people was something the Rothla feared more than anything, but there was little he could do to comfort her now. As they rounded the corner, he stopped suddenly and stretched his arm out to signal for Neve to stop. Melnid! Several of them had taken up position in the hallway as they came through the breach in the hull. Each wore armor and carried a pulse rifle. This would be no fight, only surrender, or worse. First, Hetek hung his head. There was nothing to do now. They could hide in the ship for a time, but they would only delay the inevitable. I'm sorry, Neve, the Malnid are here. I'm afraid that your people have chosen the wrong species to befriend. I will offer myself to them and hope that you and my crew might yet live. Varro, Neve asked. First, Hittek wobbled his head no. He knew the Malnid had no sympathy for the injured. Even if the rest of them were taken prisoner, Varro would be vented from an airlock. Neve looked at the small figure in her arms and shook her head. 
On an intellectual level, she knew that she and Vera were very similar in age, but because she was so much smaller, it was easy to feel her friend was much younger. It didn't help that the Rothler looked like they were designed by a Disney animator. Neve's protection instincts were in high gear. Vera was already lost so much, she could have given up, but here she was, clinging to life. The Malnid had taken almost everything from her. They would take no more. Neve shouldered past the first hittock gently and took cautious look down the hallway. The armored figures had begun to disperse. She counted fifteen of them, maybe more. The guns that they were carrying looked nasty, but there was something else Neve saw. They were not much bigger than the Rothler. From what she could have heard from Barra, she expected giants, but the figures looked only around four and a half feet tall. Neve was pretty average-sized, and she was still towered over them. First hitic, is the gravity normal for the Malnid? She asked, wiping her eyes with one sleeve. The alien captain nodded. Yes, their worlds are similar in size to most species in the galaxy. Why? Can you adjust the gravity on the ship? She asked, an idea forming in her mind. Yes, we can do that. Sometimes we need to accommodate other species if we take on passengers. There's a control room we passed on the way here, Burstetic said, looking at her through his helmet. Take me there. The Rothler led her to the closet-sized room. As he opened the panel housing and the controls, Neve gently laid Vera on the floor. She checked her breathing and satisfied herself that her friend was still alive. But not for much longer, unless she could do something to help him. Neve... I'm ready. What do you want me to do? First Hedrick said. I need you to turn the gravity up on the ship. Neve said. Humans live with a higher gravity. If I'm going to have a chance against the Malnid, I'll need to take the advantage. A chance? Neve, that is a squad of Malnid out there. We can't fight them. If we surrender, you might live. First Hedrick said. But Varro dies, isn't that right? They'll probably split us up to search the ship, so I won't be facing all at once. There's no time for arguing. Please adjust to gravity, she said. First, Hittick nodded and turned to the controls and began to feel the effects of the gravity and looked over to Neve, waiting for her to give the cue to stop. As the gravity went higher, Neve started to feel a bit more normal. She wasn't sure exactly what Earth normal would be, but when it felt familiar, she nodded to First Hittick. First, Hetek looked at the controls and felt his own weight pressing him into the floor as he struggled against the higher gravity. The human simply stood tall in the room, taking deep breaths and hopping up and down. Humans lived in this kind of crushing gravity. At least he finally began to understand her plan. If he was hindered by the higher gravity, and then the Malnid would also feel the effects as well. Neve, First, Hetek said with some effort, you'll need help. Let me come with you. No, she said, you need to stay here and help Varro. Now can you keep the gravity at that level in the rest of the ship and put it back to standard gravity in the section? I don't think it'll be good for her injuries. First, Hatek nodded and made the adjustments, feeling the relief as the gravity went down. The humans leaned down and pressed her face against Varro's fur. First, Hatek watched his gesture and wondered how an alien could show in a room more kindness than some of his own people. Then he wondered if this would be the last time he would see her. Wish me luck, she said as she straightened up, clapping Varro's translator to her suit. You have no weapons, he said. I'll get one, she replied as she closed the door. Neve, wait, he tried to say, but she was already gone. They're gone, Captain. They jumped, 
Lieutenant Pearson said as the Malmud ship blinked out of space. Let him go. Where's that last ship? Captain Lee asked. I've got them back at the last light, Captain, Walker replied from the navigation console. This took too long. We shouldn't have chased this one. Just back there, Lieutenant Pearson, and don't spare the engines. Burn them out if you have to. Mr. Singh, try and hail the last light. Let them know that we're on our way back and tell them to hold on. Captain Lee said he had made a mistake. He had let his anger get the best of him. Protecting the last light should have been their priority. Neve and the Rothler were more important than dealing with the retreating ship. Still, they needed to capture one of the ships to get some answers. Engines at full, Captain, Lieutenant Pearson said, gripping her controls tightly. Captain, one of the cannons is out. Looks like we took a direct hit there, Mathis reported. No response from the ship, sir. I can't raise Neve either, Singh said. Keep trying. Zoo, we're going to need your team to help secure the last light, Captain Lee said. My team is at the airlock, sir, only waiting for your word, Zhu replied over the comm. Captain Lee reviewed the information they had on the ships. The remaining vessel looked to be about 300 feet long, had no idea what kind of crew the Mulnet carried. The Asimov carried 50, but it wasn't a warship. How many would the Mulnet have? 200? More? Ship to ship, the Asimov could be more than hold her own, missing one cannon, but she couldn't fire at the last light. He hoped that if they had sent a boarding party, that it would be a smaller group. It was a small group, only three of them. Neve could see that they were being hampered by the higher gravity. They were moving slowly and seemed to struggle with the weight of their armor and weapons. She had debated whether she should have a bigger advantage in a lower gravity or under normal earth gravity. She had decided that it would be better to handicap the Malnid. By making the conditions difficult for them, their reactions and ability to fight would be hindered. She would have to be quicker on the lower gravity, but she was unused to it and they would have had no problem fighting normally. She took a deep breath and sprinted from her hiding place, trying to be as light as she could on her feet. She hoped the helmets that they wore would help mask her approach. As she reached them, the one at the back began to turn just as she drove her shoulder into it, sending it flying against the other two, and the pile hit the wall with a satisfying crunch, dropping their weapons. She tumbled to the floor, but righted herself quickly, reaching for the closest rifle, and aimed it at the pile of Melnid. But the weapon remained mute as she pulled the trigger. In a panic, she quickly swung the rifle and at the head of the nearest Melnid and felt the impact as it went down. She looked at the other two but paused when she saw the blood running out of the elongated snouts. The combination of her size and added gravity had the effect that she was hoping for when she got the idea after seeing what happened to the first Hetek when she bumped into him. She paused to take a breath and tried to control her shaking. She gave a quick thanks to her father for insisting that she play hockey growing up. Not too many parents would threaten their kids with losing their time for study if they didn't play sports. She still wasn't sure how many more there were, though, and even what she could do even if she could stop them all. The Asimov and all her friends were dead. She even get home. Pushing those thoughts to the back of her mind for the time being, she took another deep breath and rubbed her shoulder. She was going to hurt a lot more after this was done. Hang on, this is probably going to hurt, Pearson warned as she slammed the Asimov to a stop against the hull of the last light. Zoo and her team gripped the handles of the airlock as the impact vibrated through the ship. Sorry for the rough landing, Zoo, but we need to catch that ship before it gets away. If there are any more, then you can manage. Set up a defensive position and let us know. 
We'll come back to assist, Captain D said over the comm. We're fine, Captain. Good hunting. See you soon, Zeus said as she led her eight members of the boarding party through the airlock into the last light. The door closed behind them and she saw the Asimov accelerating in pursuit of the Melnid ship. Okay, Warner, you're taking B. A team is with me. Priorities are the safety of the Ruffler and Neve and making sure that all your ugly faces come back. Shoot on sight. Watch your firing lanes. Enemy numbers are unknown. Stay with your teams. Zeus said with a calm precision. Only she and Warner were actually ex-military, but the other members of the team were competent. Space was no place for the timid. Still, she would have preferred a proper military unit at the moment instead of part-timers. Like Warner, she had served in the military on Earth. Zoo was the only child of her middle-class parents and found that her physical attributes gave her opportunities that could not be gained in the face of the crushing academic competition of the six billion people in her country. She was smart, but could not stand the long days docked in her room reviewing dusty facts. She lived for those few hours each week when she could attend her martial arts classes, and her decision to join the military was met with sadness from her parents. In the military, she found her calling. She was quick to grasp the tactics and strategies and enjoyed the physicality. After serving in several campaigns, she found herself feeling suffocated amongst the billions on Earth, and the colonies and the Azimov provided her with a breathing space, even if it did not provide much action until now. As the team split up, she checked her rifle and backup sidearm and readjusted a knife strapped to her thigh. The Malnid were about to finally meet a human soldier. End of chapter the Azimov Part 7 of 8 Written by Shogun CDN Neve was no soldier. Her heart crashed inside her as she crept through the corridors. The initial rush of adrenaline had worn off, and now she had to work hard to push her fear down. She waited as the Malnut came around the corner and swung the rifle, catching the lead soldier full in the face, dropping him as she rushed the other two, hoping to drive them into the floor with her mass. Her shoulder caught one, but the last Malnut was further away than she had expected, and a light flashed past her face as she fell on top of the second Malnut. Neve struck out blindly with her foot and felt something give even as she pushed herself to her feet and ran away. Another flash behind her let her know that at least one of the Malnut was still alive. The high gravity would let her outrun them, but they would be looking for her now. Neve stopped in a corridor to catch her breath, and the ship shuddered again. She was tired, and her body was starting to ache even more. She wished that she had spent more time with Zoo training back on the Azimov. She proceeded cautiously through the halls and then heard another group just as they rounded the corner. She turned and desperately sprinted away down the hall as they spotted her, racing to the junction. As she slowed down to make the turn, light splashed down the hallway and one caught her in the thigh, sending her sprawling hard into the wall. Pain exploded in her leg. She dragged herself to her feet, leaned on her rifle. She knew she couldn't outrun them anymore and looked for a place to hide. At the end of the T-intersection, she pushed her way into her room. It was a crew quarters, and she took a step inside, just as the door slammed open again behind her from another pulse blast. She dove behind the bed and regretted it as pain shot up through her leg again. 
There was six Malnut at the end of the hallway. They formed up halfway down the hall, training their guns on her. Enough of this, shouted the alien in front, baring its fangs. Put down your weapon, and perhaps we'll provide you with a merciful end. If you do not, we promise that you will feel the cold terror of pain and suffering before you die. From behind the bed, Neve looked up at the ceiling, trying to figure out what parts of her didn't hurt. There was no other way out of the room. She tried to think of what Captain Lee might do in this situation. Sorry to disappoint you, but I'm Canadian. You can't threaten me with the cold. She yelled out. She hoped it sounded defiant. The Asimov closed the distance with the last Maldage ship. They had not gotten the same head start as the other ship, and Lieutenant Peterson's hard docking had saved them some time. Meaning that ship intact, Commander. Cannons only. Aim for the engines, and let's hope we don't hit anything too explodey. Mr. Singh, let me know immediately if Zoo's team requires our help, said Captain Lee. Commander Mathis worked the targeting controls and waited for the range indicator. As it beeped, he began firing bursts from the remaining cannon. The tracer rounds lit up the view screen as the Mulnard ship desperately tried to evade the Asimov. Its own pulse cannons were returning fire, shaking the Asimov with each hit, but small explosions ripped across its stern. The Malnet ship suddenly lurched to the side, gases spewing from its stern. Lights across the ship began flickering as it listed awkwardly and began rolling over. Nice shooting, Commander, Captain Lee said. The Commander turned to flash a big grin, which seemed even whiter against the dark screen. Captain, Peterson calmed. We don't want to take too much more of that. I'm reading hull damage in a few places, and we've got a few systems knocked offline. Those shots are starting to add up. Acknowledged, the captain replied. He looked at the lame ship on the screen. Commander, if you even get a sense that they are going to put up any more fight, end them. Aye, replied Commander Mathis. Malnard ship, this is Captain Lee of the starship Asimov. You will power down your weapons except for your life support. Any other actions will result in the destruction of your ship. There are no other terms. Seconds passed, and then a rough voice came over the comm. The Malnut do not. The rest was cut off by more explosions as Commander Mathis fired another burst from the cannon. Those seem like fighting words, sir, Mathis said, keeping his eyes on the targeting screen. Chaos could be heard over the open comm channel. Then the Malnut ship went dark as it began powering down. They had captured their prey. Their prey was trapped in a room. They had chased it through the corridors and were exhausted. His team was working hard in the high gravity, and Officer Nagan felt the heat in his armor as he panted to cool himself. The rest of the boarding crew were instructed to make their way to the position. The cowards on the snarl had abandoned them, and now this alien was defeating his soldiers. He had felt the blood rise in him when he spotted the creature and brought it down with his rifle. As they had rounded the corner, he had expected it to be dead. Instead, it had survived the shot and had made it into the room. They had advanced cautiously, having seen the remains of their comrades in the corridors. He had offered it a quick death, but the thing just yelled at something and his translator could not interpret. 
As he pondered what a Canadian might be, his calm erupted with noise. Shoot them! Where are they? I, I think I got one. Uh, fall back, fall back. What are they wearing? Leave the wounded. Then, behind them, five malnet soldiers lumbered around the corner in a frenzied mess. The last one in the group suddenly dropped before he could make the turn as his armor exploded out one side of his body. Officer Nagan had not seen any pulse flashes, but the walls in the corridor erupted in fragments. They're coming! One of the soldiers screamed as he crashed into the officer Nagan's group. He slapped the coward and pushed him aside. Farm up! When they come around that corner, kill them! Officer Nagan ordered. The soldiers fell back on their training and formed a defensive line. Officer Nagan could hear the labored panting over his comms and thought that he could smell the fear. He had never seen his soldiers like this before. They were acting like raw conscripts. They had boarded the ship, expecting to face a small crew of cowardly Rottler. Then they encountered a giant alien, and now something had managed to frighten his soldiers. They were not prepared for this. What had these Rottler found? An armored limb appeared briefly down the hallway, and two small canisters skidded down the corridor. The Malnut soldiers scrambled over each other to avoid the unknown weapon. Officer Nagan roared at them to find cover, but just as he uttered the command, his world blinked out in a white flash, and he could no longer hear anything except a hazy ringing sound. He fired blindly down the hall in rage, hoping to hit the back of the enemy. A sharp, sudden pain erupted in his chest, and he fell to the ground, dropping his rifle. As the seconds passed, his vision started to return, and he heard a loud, muffled cracks through his impaired hearing. Dazed, he looked around at his soldiers, dead or dying around him as the room continued to spin. Finally, the noises stopped, and he saw the blurry images of the enemy approaching. An armored boot kicked away his rifle. Officer Nagan could only pant heavily as the taste of blood filled his maw. Zoo watched the alien rival skitter away as she kept an eye on the injured alien. This one's still breathing, Toby stared over the comm. Check him for weapons, but otherwise leave him. He's not our priority, Zoo replied with no emotion. This was something Zoo would admit to be very few people. She actually enjoyed this part of the job, seeing her enemies defeated. She never harbored any sympathy for anyone that chose to take up arms to fight against her. Looking at the Malnut panting rapidly and bleeding from its wounds, she silently wished it a slow death. She turned her attention to the end of the hallway when Nee was struggling to get to her feet. Secure the area. Warner, we're on level two. We found Neve. We have twelve bad guys down. What's your status? she said. We found the Rotha and Engineering. First Hethic and Barrow are still missing. Chalk up three space walls for us. Mathers took a hit because of stupidity. But he'll recover, Warner replied. Shut up, Warner. No one told me we were fighting hairy alien dwarves, Mathers calmed. Save it for later. Lock down there and hold that position until further notice, she said. 
Zoe! He yelled as she reached the room. I thought you were dead. Burst Hedrick said you were gone. I thought he meant... We had to cut loose so that we could fight. But you know we'd never leave you. By the way, the gravity was that you... Zoo asked. Eve nodded. Good thinking. I noticed it shortly after we boarded. The Melnid looked like they were walking through water. We spotted a group running somewhere in a hurry. They led us right here. Zoo helped Neve sit on the bed. Are you hurt badly? I don't think anything's broken. It's just really painful. Neve replied, clutching Zoo tightly to her. Dr. Chan will fix you right up. Barrel! We need to get Dr. Chan here. She's hurt. She's lost a lot of blood, Neve said. I'll relay that to the ship. Where is she? They're in a control room on this level. I'll have to show you. I can walk if you help me, Neve said, struggling to get up. Easy now. Day team, we've got an escort mission now. Give me a perimeter for our package here. First person to let anything through scrubs the outside of the ship for a month. Let's move. Zoo said. Can you move it? Dr. Chan asked as he held Neve's leg. Only if I sing ow, 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 she replied through gritted teeth. First Hetek looked down with concern. He had seen his crew and wanted to make sure the brave human that saved them was safe. They were currently back in Bay 2 where the humans had set up their equipment. Warner stood guard near them. They had swept the ship multiple times but remained vigilant in case the Malnid had gone into hiding. In total, eighteen Malnid were found. One was smart enough to surrender and the rest were taken out without much trouble. They were simply overmatched by armored humans in a high gravity. I think you're going to be limping for a bit but otherwise no permanent damage. You were lucky it just grazed you otherwise you may have shattered your pelvis. You're going to need to take it easy for a bit, Dr. Chan said. How's Barrow? Neve asked. She's stable as far as I can tell. You can see her again once I'm done here. The gash was ugly, but once we got a bleeding to stop, I stitched her up. I don't know if the Rothler scar like we do, but if they do, she's going to have a pretty good one to tell her friends stories about, Dr. Chan replied. I need to see her, Neve said. You will, but Neve, we have another problem. You were exposed to them and the Malnid without your suit. I don't know what's going to happen to you, or to them. You're going to have to stay here for a while until we can get the full diagnostic run, and then you're still going to have to go through some pretty unpleasant decontamination procedures followed by a quarantine before you can come back on board the Asimov, I'm afraid, Dr. Chance said. First Hetek looked at the doctor, puzzled. Doctor, is that why you wear your suits? We thought it was simply a custom of your species, or perhaps because you found our atmosphere inhospitable. We do not think that you have anything to worry about. We carry the standard biological inhibitors on board. All Rothler have them. What do you mean? Dr. Chan asked. Our people and every other species are able to freely mix, as long as our environments permit us using the inhibitors. They protect us from foreign elements once programmed with the host species library of known bacteria and viruses. It's a very old technology, First Hittick said. I'm going to need you to get me a few of those devices, but it's going to take some time before we can use it. We'll get the R&D guys and put a rush on it. But until then, Neve, this is your home. 
Dr. Chan said, picking up his equipment. Warner walked closer to Neve. Listen, Neve, no offense, but uh, when you come back to the ship, if you give me space measles or something that causes any part I need to fall off my body, we're gonna have words. And just to be clear, I need all the parts I currently have. Neve aimed a kick at his armored leg and immediately regretted her choice of leg to kick with. Marrow looked up at Neve. She had never seen her outside her suit before. The fur on her head was long and tied up behind her head. It was hard to believe that this one human had been able to hold off all the malnud. She had no fangs or claws, and Vera was told that she did it without any weapons except a rifle that she had to use as a club. Neve, you did not tell me you were a warrior, Vera said. I am not. Zoo and Warner are. I take care of navigation, Neve replied. They were in the first Hetic's quarters, and the extra space had given the doctor more room to work, and first Hetic had insisted upon it. But I heard what happened. How could you do that to the Mulnard if you are not a warrior? Varro asked. High gravity and the right motivation, I guess. Neve replied, holding Varro's paw. Varro felt the human skin. It was softer than she had imagined and held her paw gently. And yet, these same hands had killed Mulnard. Why were you not afraid, Neve? Do humans not feel fear? Is that why humans are so good at war? Varro asked. Of course we feel fear. I was very afraid, at least until I saw Zoo. But I was more afraid of what would happen to you, Neve replied. Varro considered her new friend. She could stand against Mulder despite being afraid. She ate the flesh of other animals and yet sacrificed herself to save Rothla she barely knew. These humans were going to change the galaxy, she thought to herself. End of chapter Niazamoth Part 8 of 8 Written by Shogun CDN Officer Palat looked at the armored figure on his bridge. He had been brought out from his landing bay, where he and the rest of the Mulnard had been kept prisoner since the ship was disabled. They were beaten and humiliated. This human towered over him, and he wasn't even the largest one he'd seen. Their weapons officer was even bigger, but he was still a Mulnard and summoned up his courage. Your ship, the Azimov, was he a great warrior of your people? he asked. No, replied the alien. He was a writer and a scientist and a dreamer. He wrote about where man could go and what we might achieve in the stars. The ship was built to help humans explore the galaxy as well as the Laguain. They were named after those that inspired us to look up and find our place in the universe. Then you will fail, human. The Malnad Empire will rise up. You and your writers and dreamers will not save you. Palat growled defiantly. Really? We have a saying, the pen is mightier than the sword. I think we did pretty well against you in this writer's ship. But you have to understand that humans are a paranoid lot. We don't even trust each other that much. Even as we'd hoped to encounter other species, we prepared. We dreamed that we would be met with pen, but also we knew we might be met with sword. The alien said as he motioned towards the front of the bridge. 
Balak turned his fur on his spine, stood up as the massive bulk of over 5,000 foot long Issei Vanguard slowly slid over the snow, like an armored serpent uncoiling an impossibly long body. The massive gun placements on its hull made clear to Balat that the humans did not play at war. As the vanguard stretched out further in the horizon, Balat began to fear for his people. Captain Lee returned to the last light. First Hedrick had set up a meeting room near the bridge. The ESA vanguard loomed outside with its sister ships that were arriving, and First Hedrick's short tail flicked nervously under his smock as he gaped at the massive ship. The Asimov sat in shadows, ugly marks stretched across its hull from the fight, and one of its cannons almost sheared off. The humans and robots moved across the ship, effecting repairs. As resilient as the ship was, they were lucky that the Malnid had not pressed their numerical advantage. First Hedrick, Captain Lee said as he entered, stifling the urge to pick up the alien and squeezing it. I'm sorry we've kept you. We had to secure the Mulded ship, and Admiral Jenkins wanted a debrief. My bosses also wanted an accounting of the damages to the Asimov. Of course, Captain, I understand. We are grateful for everything you have done. I can ask for nothing more from you, Firstetic replied. Have you managed to contact your people? Captain Lee asked. Not yet, but Nimmin tells me your Peterson is a talented engineer, so we hope to have it fixed shortly. They've been focused on getting the engines running. Captain, I owe you an explanation about the Malnid, First Hetic replied. Captain Lee interrupted him. You ran into a Malnid patrol and tried to escape. The last light is not exactly a completely legal operation. Not anything too illegal, but under Malnid rules, you have some tolls and taxes that you hadn't paid. Sometimes you carry cargo you shouldn't be carrying, and you don't always register your flight plans. You are known to the Muldered in the sector, and you have been unspoken arrangement with them. Sometimes you pay, sometimes you don't, but usually they don't really care as long as you pay more often than not. You tried to slip away, as you normally do, but this time they fired on your ship. You didn't know why and ran, but for some reason they wouldn't give up, and you found yourself here after running for a long time. You thought you might hide near the dead zone. Captain Lee continued. First Hedrick's eyes widened. Yes, how did you know? Captain Lee reached into his pocket of his suit and pulled out an object, setting it on the table between them. First Hedrick leaned closer and saw it was a malnut fang. He looked up at Captain Lee. How did he lose a fang? First Hedrick asked. Zoo is very curious. Would you like to know why they chased you so hard? The Rothler nodded, or rather wobbled as his head in a manner that looked like a nod. Marrow, she's the last survivor of a colony that was wiped out by the Maldred, the one you found her at. There were supposed to be no survivors, no evidence. The Maldred had claimed the colony was killed by an unknown rogue elements. But Varro saw them. She knew that they were part of the Maldred forces. You weren't supposed to be there. Your trip to the colony wasn't registered. It seems after a long time of ruling the galaxy, a lot of species are getting a little tired of the Malnid, Captain Lee said. We heard the same reports about the colony. I, I've heard rumblings about descent, but the Malnid have always been like this, First Hittick said. 
Yes, but in the past it's been in times of war or they'd always had some pretense, some ruse that they used to justify their actions. Maybe they say that they were attacked first or were defending their territory and it worked. This time they had nothing. The colony was legally established, even under their rules. The commander of the force went way too far, Captain Lee said, turning the fang over in his hand. The Malnet may be bullies, but the galaxy is a big place, and even they don't have the strength to fight other species if they decided to band together. In order to do that, they thought they needed a catalyst. Varro, you saved the one Rothler that might change the galaxy. First Hetek sat on the bridge, rubbing his two snouts absentmindedly, thinking about everything that had happened. They had repaired the communication systems, and he had sent a message to the nearest Rothler colony, informing them that they had a survivor from the colony, as well as a captured Malnid officer with information. During this time, the humans had brought even more ships into the immediate area. No fewer than six of the mammoth ships and a dozen smaller ships were preparing to escort the last line back to Rothler territory, once Neve finished calculating the route. Their new friends were powerful, and yet so strange. As he watched the stars, he thought about the last words Captain Lee had said to him. He reminded himself to ask Mr. Singh to explain later what it meant to get your lunch money back. Second Lytton entered and took a place at the helm. Sir, the man has confirmed containment is fully repaired and the hyperdrive is back online. We are ready to depart. The vanguard will lead. We will follow the Azimov in the convoy. Good, first Hittick said as he placed a reassuring paw on the second Lytton's shoulder. Do not lose that ship. The end. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment, just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one, and until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.